Welcome to Wired for Impact, home of creators, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are wired to make a difference. If you're here, it's because you have three things. Number one, a unique gift or calling. Number two, you care about people. And number three, you have a deep desire to contribute. When you add those three things up, you are in the game of creating impact. You are what I call an impact player. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the program. And in each episode, I have conversations with world-class impact players who have aligned their unique gifts with the contribution they've made in the world to create massive impact. So listen into these conversations and allow them to inspire you to overcome the obstacles in your way and to fulfill your potential. All right, I'm here with Tyson Adams. How are you doing, Tyson? I'm doing well, Peter. Thanks for having me. Excellent, man. I, I, um, we've had some interesting conversations over the last few weeks and you've had some pretty interesting experiences over the last few weeks about, um, sexual transmutation, transcendental meditation, um, ayahuasca, psychedelics, et cetera. And so I wanted to have you on the podcast because this has been your, your life vocation and inspiration. Um, you have inspired, uh, not just me, but also uh, Evan, who I've had on the podcast as well, and many other men. But first and foremost, thank you for being on the call and taking some time today to talk about it. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Um, I, I After I did the call with Evan, I got a lot of people that uh, texted me and wrote me and said, you know, I, I didn't know what sexual transmutation was. Um, I, I'm still trying to get a better understanding of it. And Evan, and I talked and he had mentioned you and, and, and obviously that's why we're talking now, but I wanted to get your take on what sexual transmutation is and why it's important. Why is it beneficial for people to understand what it is and to ultimately practice it? Yeah. So the reason why it, uh, is on people's radars because of Napoleon Hill, he wrote think and grow rich back in the thirties. It's the number one, best-selling book on money mindset in the world, period. And there's this mysterious chapter, which he calls the mystery of sex transmutation, chapter 11, which talks about these wild energies that uh, if you know how to transform them, which in his definition, you know, transmutation is this concept of transforming or transferring one form of energy or element into another form. Um, you can actually unlock these other levels of consciousness or these other levels of entrepreneurial uh wisdom effectively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when I read it, uh, this was several years back, I thought to myself, well, great Napoleon, but, but where's the map? Like you didn't provide any solution to figuring this thing out. And so for the past two years, I've basically been on that, you know, that mission to understand it both from a Eastern philosophy, Taoist perspective, Tantra and things of that nature, but also, you know, uh, science, what is uh, of segmentation. And when I speak about that, really what I'm talking about is the actual practice. So what we're talking about is locating your raw sexual energy, which is located at the root of your body in your perineum, and then being able to locate it, harness it with your breath, draw it up your spine and into your actual brain, where it unlocks different brain waves, um, gamma, which actually synchronizes your peripheral and nervous, your peripheral and central nervous system. Um, and then you drop that energy down into the belly where it's useful to you. So that's kind of the, the big arc of where we're headed. Yeah, dude, that's, it's, uh, quite literally mind blowing. Um, and as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I've been doing a lot of Joe Dispenza meditations and better understanding what the body is capable of, what levels of, uh, frequency you can tap into, what levels of consciousness that you can tap into, um, and ultimately how that manifests in our three-dimensional world, as Joe Dispenza would call it. Um, so it's still a, a fairly esoteric concept for a lot of people. Um, let's get into a little bit more of the granular about because, and I'm, it sounds like you understand the history of it as well beyond, uh, or that, that preceded Napoleon, because I was curious what the origin was. Um, you talked about the Taoist, um, philosophies and, and practices. I, I'm curious to know if, if you know more about the history of that as well. So I, I, can you help us better understand maybe the origin of this, why people started to practice it, um, and ultimately how that affects their life and, and the impact that they create in the world? Sure, sure. I think the most important 
question to go to first before answering that question is ultimately like, what is it costing a man to leak his sexual energy? Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, a man that was addicted to porn for two decades, leaking out my energy, I wasn't aware of these effects that it was having on me, both you know physically, but also mentally and emotionally. And so when you start to look at like, okay, well, what was what was it before it began where we got into this hypersexualized um, sort of culture? And when you're looking at Taoist philosophy and you're looking at um, things that predate even Tantra about 1500 years before that, uh, it was all about uh, semen retention. Um, and they really equated one drop of semen equal to 100 drops of blood. So if you are masturbating and you know this energy is going out and it's not being transmuted or transformed into other forms of energy then you're basically just wasting your life force. And so that's really kind of the basis of it. But in addition to that, when you learn how to squeeze the perineum, and there's five channels in the body, there's the front channel, two side channels, the middle channel, and the back channel. And so when you're squeezing and you're drawing that energy up, you can draw it up into any place in the body that you that you would like. So let's just say you're having a difficulty with kidney issues and you want to uh, bring some life and some energy into those spots. You can actually pull the energy up and you can direct it to particular organs in the body, which strengthen those organs, which created that individual or that man to be a better warrior. Let's say he's going into battle. And he wants to strengthen his actual inner organs so that their um, the ability to be hit and to not like have these reflexes where they, you know, break down. So there was a lot of reasons for that. And then in addition, it, you know, there's a degree of wanting to live as long as you possibly can. So in uh, sex transmutation or in the, the concepts of Dallas philosophy, when you're making love, um, your ability to actually draw the energy of the other person into your own body helps to keep you youthful and to keep you uh, living as long as possible. And you can both give those energies to another or you can receive those energies from somebody. So this you know, kind of bridges into how to, how to be energetically connected as a lover as well. But you know, that's, th- those are some pieces to how this kind of came to the West effectively. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, do, are you aware of science that helps show, uh, improvement of, of kidney or liver or whatever through this practice? Do they have something like yeah. that? Yeah. So as it relates to the concept of pulling this energy into certain organs and testing, whether that happens or not, um, I'm not aware of anybody that's doing that. So Montak Chia, he's kind of the big guy in the space that talks a lot about these things. But what I can definitely say from my own sort of uh, subjective experience is that I was doing a liver cleanse once. Um, this was a couple months ago. And I was, um, you know, in Chinese medicine, if you, the, this is the liver line right here in the forehead. So I was rubbing my liver line and ultimately I was squeezing the perineum and drawing the energy into my liver. And I could actually feel my liver dumping my liver stones into my gallbladder. I could actually feel them moving from the wow. liver into the gallbladder and then wow. moving out of my body. So there is something to this when we learn how to move energy, because there's, there's these experiences that we have that then help us to understand, but definitely from a brain, from a brainwave state and uh, looking, you know, obviously Joe Dispenza's work is ultimately like, you know, from perineum to pineal gland, that's what he talks about, which is unlocking gamma in the brain. And from doing my own experiences and my own experiments with, with um, neurofeedback, uh, there's a couple of things you have to understand here. One is, is that when you're squeezing the body or you're squeezing the perineum, you're disrupting what they call, um, what's it called? Where you get uh, a feedback where basically, or not feedback, um, there's a word for it. Uh, I'll come to it in a second. But basically, you, it it creates a situation where you're not sure if the gammas are created just from the experience or from the actual squeezing. So what I've done to eliminate that is just do the actual transmutation processes. So if people are familiar with microcosmic orbit, where you're bringing the energy up into the brain, you can actually see the brain waves changing even without squeezing your own perineum. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we're headed with this information. What's what's I've heard of the microcosmic orbit, but uh, explain what that is. Yeah. So the microcosmic orbit ultimately is, is it's mainly working the back channel. So it's effectively locating your uh, root and then pulling the energy up the spine into the brain and then dropping it down the front of the body um, and then kind of circling it. Um, and everybody has a little bit of a different way to do that. For me, I find that the perineum is ultimately the, the how do I say this? It's the 
easiest way to get into understanding these energies. So when I work with a man, for example, I'll have I'll lead a guided meditation where uh, ultimately they take a breath up to about 70% and then hold it. And then they just do those squeezes. And when you're, and just for those that are listening, if you're not aware of the perineum, like where that's at, you ultimately have three places. You have right underneath your ball sack, and then you have the actual space between your ball sack and your butthole. That's the actual perineum. And then you also have a space in your, in your anus. So there's three spots that you can actually squeeze. And then you can actually squeeze the left side of your anus and the right side of your anus. And so when you're doing different channels and you're moving energies in different directions, whether it's the front channel, back channel, middle channel, or side channels, you can actually feel the, the difference in where the energies are moving and how they're moving through the body and kind of what the impact is. That's crazy. I know everybody listening to this was just trying to squeeze their left and right anuses <laughs> as I was, as you're like, oh shit, I didn't know I could do that. Um, I, I, it's, it's often, and, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, the tantric stuff and, and the sexual side of sexual transmutation and, or, you know, transcendentalism, whatever. Um, but I know that a lot of people, and the, and the whole reason why I think Napoleon Hill put it in his book was he was talking about how to take this primal energy force that we all have, but especially I think at least in this context with men and how to turn that into productive, creative energy. So let's talk about the entrepreneurial transmutation of that sexual urge into productive creation in the world? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's a great question. So, so I had a situation um, that kind of unlocked this for me where I was hiking in this hill and I got to the top of the hill and um, I was doing my perineum squeezes. I do about 300 or so a day, every day. Um, and then I do them randomly throughout the day, depending upon what I need energy or when I want to up or down regulate my nervous system. Um, and on this particular day, uh, you know, when you sneeze and when you sneeze, you get kind of that sort of goosebumpy orgasmic feel that kind of like comes over your arms and legs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, on this day I sneezed and I kept squeezing and I was able to elongate the moment, which is to say that the actual sneeze feeling lasted about 20 times longer mm-hmm. than normal. So in that moment, I thought to myself, well, holy shit, I've effectively bent time. Now, obviously I didn't really bend time, but what I did was I elongated this moment where I was present with myself. And I was like, oh, how can I apply this to other things? And so I would walk over to a flower and I would smell the flower and I would hold my breath with the aroma in my, in the, the aroma of the flower in my, in my lungs. And then I would squeeze my perineum and I could start to move the aroma and the spirit of the plant to these different parts of my body. I could feel them moving through my cells. And in that experience, I was like, Whoa. And the reason why that's beneficial, at least in my experience, is like when you are genuinely curious in a moment, you can't simultaneously be uh, anxious or Mm -hmm. in a state of fear or in a state of prefrontal cortex planning, or I should have done this or I need to do that. So it's this moment where you're really with you're really with yourself. And so what I realized is, oh my gosh, I can do that with anything. I put a piece of chocolate in my mouth. I pet a dog. I give somebody a hug all of a sudden I'm starting to write, I'm in a creative flow. So it's like, you're starting to write and all of a sudden the ADD comes in and you're wanting to check your social media or you're, or are you getting pulled into this? It's like, no, 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 no. Just, I want to be in this flow. I want to keep it going. So it's squeeze, 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 squeeze. The energy moves up into the brain and I can feel my brain. It like actually is a felt almost vibratory shake. I can actually hear a clicking noise that happens in my ears and an actual, just like, Ah, and I can feel my parasympathetic nervous system actually slow down. And then I re-enter whatever it is I'm writing or whatever it is I'm doing entrepreneurially. So basically what I'm saying is, is that a flow state, which ultimately is timelessness. Um, I actually wrote a post about this uh, earlier today because it's like, you know, Jamie Wheel, he's kind of the, he's the founder of this uh, flow genome project. But ultimately what we're talking about within the flow genome project is you know, like what is, what is flow? So it's selflessness. There's a loss of self-consciousness where action and awareness merge. There's timelessness. You either feel like time slows down or it speeds up effortlessness. Every action feels as though it's automatic leading from one to the next in spontaneous creative fashion and then richness, which is your mind feels as though it has access to a vast database of information. And so that's really what you have on tap. If you know how to use your raw sexual energy and you know how to transmute it properly into the brain, then you get these moments where you can elongate your creative flow and then you can actually, 
you the other day I was literally in a flow state for five straight hours. And it was Mm. just like, and every time I would slow down or I get distracted or I needed to do this or that boom, 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 squeeze. And then I would re-enter. And so that's ultimately like how we can utilize this as entrepreneurs, which is it's your physiology that you need to have control of in order to be able to stay in the flow of whatever it is that you're creating in a moment, in a moment. It's physiology, but isn't it also mental? Like there's a, a awareness, a consciousness component that you're bringing to this too, or, or do you, is it largely driven by the physiology and then the body well, I, just responds to that? I think it's two things. One, it's that there's, there's two different things that I would say this helps for, which is, um, something that you don't want to be feeling or something that you actually want to be feeling. So what I mean by that is, is that I don't look at any emotion as being a bad emotion, but there are certain emotions or feelings that come in that take us from the, from the moment and they put us into a, a spiral. And so the point more so is to say that when you, when you want to push something away, often we numb it or we distract ourselves or whatever. So instead it's like, Oh, there's an emotion that's here. I'm triggered. What is this about? I squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. And then I allow that energy to flow up. And so I bring whatever that emotion is close to me so that I can actually feel it instead of trying to feel better. I try to get better at feeling whatever that is so that it's instructive to me. So that's the one piece. And then it is, if you are in a creative flow or an imaginative flow where things are unlocking and you're starting to build and you're starting to create and you want to elongate that and ride that wave, obviously that that's also possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned, uh, an interest and also some experience with psychedelics. Um, I know you recently came back from an ayahuasca, um, experience. Can you share your perspective on the value of that? Um, uh, and maybe some of your journey, how you got involved with it, maybe what were some of the preconceptions that you had leading into it? And then what opened up for you after you used practiced it? Ayahuasca is mother ayahuasca. She's a doozy. Um, But what I will say about this is that having done hundreds of psychedelic trips with many different types of psychedelics over the course of the last four years, this was my first time actually sitting with her in a, in a, uh, an actual container where there's, you know, 15 people, music, uh, somebody leading it. And so what I can say about that is, is that it's a very, uh, communal experience. Whereas often psychedelic experiences, if you're going inward are very, you know, just solo. And so when there's a collective experience, a whole other thing comes alive because there's a, there's a a group experience. And then there's also an individual one and you're writing that wave between duality and non-duality as you're experiencing that. Uh, For me, one of the things that was the most important was, is I just got out my mercury fillings out of my teeth. Um, mm. had amalgam fillings. They were actually causing my face to twitch. They were causing me all kinds of brain fog. They were causing me all kinds of focus related ADD issues along with just ultimately, uh, just a lack of having control of my awareness because there's actual mercury that's literally getting up into the brain and causing these issues. So how, I, I, can I ask you really quick, how many fillings did you have? I had two huge ones on the right side and one big one on the left side. Okay. And the ones on the right were the biggest ones. Um, and so when I got those out, I immediately started feeling better. Everything wow. was better. But when I got into the ayahuasca journey, here I was when I took it on the first night and, you know, I took two cups and ultimately what was, what was going on was two things. One was, um, wow, I can actually, you know, direct mother ayahuasca into whatever part of my body I want. So I could actually bring her into the cells of my bones and my cheeks and my brain tissue and my eyeball. And I could actually, um, direct her into those spaces. And then I could, um, ask for that to be taken down the channel of my body and into my belly. And with ayahuasca, you, you know, you purge, that's the, that's the thing. And so I was able to accumulate and move these heavy metals and all of the energetics into my belly. And then what was really strange, which was, I guess you could say more on a spiritual or more on a, I don't even know, like some weird kind of level, but, uh, as the energy started to build in my system, my ear actually like my head tilted and it literally felt like somebody was pulling a string out of my ear and I could hear it. And it was like, and it literally like pulled me out of my seat. 
And I went up and sat in front of the shaman and ultimately the shaman, he had actually been through a similar experience where he had had mercury poisoning about a decade ago. And so he just started playing this song like really, really loud and drawing the, both the spirit of the actual amalgams. Cause you know, the industry of the dental industry is its own corrupt institution and it has its own agendas. And that's obviously sick care. It's not healthcare. I mean, it's, it poisons people. And like, I didn't realize I had normalized being poisoned since the time I was nine, ultimately. So as he's playing, the spirit is pulling the actual energy out of my brain and out of my body. And two, the heavy metals are coming into my belly. So then when I actually purged, literally I purged all of this mercury out and I could literally taste it and feel it on my tongue, leaving my body and exiting out into the vomit. Dude. Wow. Yeah. Huge. Crazy tense. I stood up and I was like, oh my God, I'm fucking free. It felt amazing. And simultaneously, like, whoo, I did not know how sick I was. I had no clue how sick I was until that moment. You're referencing uh, my uh, mother ayahuasca. Why? Yes. Because mother ayahuasca teaches. Slow down and be very gentle with yourself. Like, you know, I um, what's it called? Iboga is, I've never done Iboga other than a microdose, but that's what they call grandfather or, you know, or father, which is more of an African um, psychedelic experience. And of course, they've taken Iboga over into South America and other places like Costa Rica, you can do Iboga and things. But from what I understand, the difference is like, one is a more uh, feminine energy, one is a more masculine energy as it relates to it. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it really teaches you how to nurture yourself and how to calm yourself and how to be gentle with your body and with yourself. So it's, it's a very loving embrace more so than a really like intense one ultimately. So some of the other experiences have more of a masculine intensity to it. Is that the difference of the experience? Yeah. Yeah. My, my mushroom journeys have been a more masculine, more warrior type energy. Sometimes it can be very intense. Whereas uh, with the ayahuasca, I was able to just be very, very still and very quiet. And I was able to have these things reveal. And that was just the first night I had other crazy experiences within that, that I'm more than happy to go into, but ultimately like, you know, it's a, it's a bigger, it's a bigger conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I'm always down for the, for the bigger stuff. Um, yeah. can, bef- can I, before we go into that, I have a question though for you. Did you, are you a person of faith? Did you ever, did you, were you ever a part of a religion? If you don't mind me asking that. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for asking that. Um, I grew up in a Catholic school, but I was always the one that never went through confirmation or anything. So I was always the one going up and <laughs> crossing my arms and getting a little cross on my forehead. Um, so I, I was not re- raised in a religious context for uh, a decade. So I am curious about all philosophies and scientific and, uh, you know, both religious beliefs and atheist beliefs. So I really ride that agnostic line. Um, But if I were to, you know, say what I actually believe, like I believe that there's an intelligence to this system and, um, and I'm absolutely unprivy to the actuality of how that all works. Mm -hmm. The more you go into these psychedelic states and the more you have revealed to, the more you realize like, wow, this is a really complex system. And so for me, I kind of just, I'm open to everything. And the good news with being agnostic, at least for me is, is that I'm not leading anybody towards anything, nor can I be led towards anything. So it's not like I'm seeking a guru or a guide or a cult or a church or a religion. It's like, I'm not seeking that, nor am I leading people to that. It's kind of like, yeah, I just get to be in the middle and just accept people for where they're at and who they are and you know, what their journey is. Yeah. Which I find to be a very beautiful energy in general. Um, uh, the, the, the no judgment and the humility that comes with that. Um, because these experiences can be humbling. And, uh, I, I, part of the reason why I asked that is because as our world around us seems to be collapsing on many levels, um, I know there's a lot of religious people, um, that I know I grew up in a Christian faith, um, that feel that that is a pillar of society. And when you remove that pillar, um, amongst other pillars, a society can crumble and can, can collapse. Um, and I'm, and I'm, 
part of my personal journey has been to question those uncomfortable questions or beliefs in my own experience. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's been a strong one for me growing up is that I see the value of a faith in a family unit, in a society. Um, historically, we know that faiths have helped cultivate and, um, create productive societies. Um, at the same time, I've also experienced other parts of that where there's self-righteousness and judgment. And if you don't fall in line with it, then, you know, you're going to hell or whatever. And, and I don't, I don't subscribe to that either. So I look at some of this collapsing and, and question is, is there value in that? Is, is it, does it need to come down in order for something to regrow and rebuild? And, and is there, cause what you're talking about is non-denominational. It is a, a human path towards higher spiritual understanding and consciousness. And, uh, it's, it follows no, you know, there's no culture. Well, you did talk about the, the Dallas, um, history of some of this, but there really is, it's an openness. It's universal. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's applicable to, to anybody, even if it's my personal experience, experience, you could be Jewish, you could be Christian or, and go into this experience and perhaps have that even deepen your faith as there's fundamentals in my faith. And I've had experiences that are outside of what my church would say is, you know, part of the religious um, experience, but my understanding of the, the expansion of my thought and spirituality has only reinforced and deepened my understanding of what I was given growing up in my personal, you know, the foundations of the faith that I, that I grew up in. So um, some of that gets challenged. Some of that gets refined or I rethink through it, but they're the fundamental blocks are still there. So anyway, I was just curious if uh, as part of the reason why I ask, because I know that is something on people's minds right now with, with a lot of the things that are happening in the world is do we need to return to a religious structure um, or, and this is kind of where I'm going with it. Is it possible that maybe we, we let go of the dogma around religion and um, surrender to a higher order that is universal for all mankind that has no, um, you know, dogma around it. Uh, it's just yeah. curious. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. And what I would say is, um, yeah, being raised in a Christian family or Christian church or society, ultimately, um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to, question and, and, and not only question, but to, uh, to hold, to hold and to say, yeah, have we gotten to a place where maybe it's time to, uh, to outgrow some of these ways of existing and being, and what comes up for me around that is, is I think I mentioned this to you when we talked a couple, a couple of weeks ago, but ultimately, uh, at the end of a 10 gram mushroom journey that I went on, that was pretty gnarly at the end of it, uh, when all of my own projections of what God actually was needed to fracture, including that I was even important to be revealed to this sort of state of being where all of this stuff came through in that fracturing, one simple principle was revealed to me. Um, and so I'll share that principle. And this is a part of what I believe is necessary in order for us to rebuild. This is just my, my experience. And this isn't necessarily an absolute truth that I think is the truth of the world or that is because it, if I, if I were to approach it as absolute truth, it could become its own dogma or it could become its own religious sort exactly. of kind of thing. But yep. what was revealed to me was, uh, and this was in native American land, actually uh, near uh, San Diego and Hakumba. Um, but what was revealed to me was that the way that a man treats his penis is the way that a man treats everyone and everything in the world. And so when I received that download, I was like, fuck, that's, that's a heavy thing to, to, to really consider. And, and as somebody who really loves psychotherapy and shadow work and parts work, just as much as I love spiritual practice, I started to move into the actuality of what that was. And I was like, well, what does that, what does that really mean? And so what I started to realize was like, oh, so there's this, you know, golden rule, which is, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. But here's the reality. If you're treating yourself unknowingly like a piece of shit, meaning 
think about just the concept of masturbation. You wank it, you jerk it, you, you know, you, you, uh, ultimately you beat off. Like if we are unconsciously using and abusing our own penises, meaning that we're using our, or using our own penises to feel better when we're sad or sick or bored or angry or any emotion we don't want to feel, if this is where we soothe ourselves, then my experience has been that there's an unconscious part of the psyche that gets projected outwardly and uses other people, the natural world, and even our businesses also unknowingly as a means to an end too. Mm. And so that's a, it's an interesting concept, but ultimately as I started to unpack it, I realized, oh shit, yeah. Being addicted to porn for 20 years and using myself to feel better all the time, I was using other people. I would get into relationships where I would just treat them as an extension of that same means. I didn't actually see her and feel her and love her. She was an object of my <laughs> sexual distortion, which was that I was using her to feel better. Same with my business partner, same with the natural world. And so what I realized is that a lot of people that are in positions of power, whether they're politicians, they're government, government, government leaders, they're, uh, let's just say religious leaders, they actually, at least from my observation, they feel that they're doing God's work or important work. But what they can't see is, is if they're at home out of integrity with their own sexual practice and their own sexual energy, they can't see that they're using other people as a means to an end. So that's been my experience. Just kind of. It's, a, it's a really good. Uh, I love what you said about using yourself. Like so many times we think of abusing or using, you'll often hear um, men or about men that they will use women or, or, you know, women do too, but um, that men will use uh, women or other things as a means to an end, but to internalize that and realize, Oh shit, I'm using myself. Um, well, like, what does that actually mean to you? And what's the antithesis of that? How do you, how would you treat your dick in a way that is loving and, and not to get too like graphic oh, about it or weird about it, but um so that, so that the external projection of it is also embracing others and, and co-creating and contributing and, and loving as opposed to the, the using. Uh, I love that question. Thank you. That is such a beautiful question. So what I realized is that if you're aware that you're using yourself to feel better, then that's not in your shadow. It's not in a part of your psyche that you don't know. So if you're, you can't sleep and that's the way that you use to go to, you know, cause you're, you're having insomnia and that's how you go to bed, but you're aware that you're doing that, then you're empowered. There's nothing wrong with using yourself as a means. Mm-hmm. It's if you don't know, or you're in denial. So mm-hmm. I'm not even anti-porn. If you use porn, but you're aware that you're using it to feel better, then that's fine. But if you don't know, that's, that's where it becomes dangerous. So what I always say to men is, is okay, um, if we want to move from a mindless masturbation, uh, let's just call it habit, into a, a more mindful masturbation ritual, what does that look like? So in my experience, what that's been like, as I've deconstructed this over four and a half years, is I had to get really... Uh, aware of like, what was the impact pornography was having on me? So I ran this, uh, I ran this um, little experiment where legitimately I hadn't watched porn in four years. And so I decided that I was going to actually put some on. So I queued it up and I had no intention of touching myself or actually masturbating, but I just wanted to see what impact does it really have on men's nervous system so that I can empathize with them to help them move through their own addictions and their own compulsions around this. Mm. So I queued it up. I picked this porn that I knew about from four and a half years ago. That was my favorite or four years ago. That was my favorite. I just did a short video, one minute or whatever, turned it on literally like seconds. Boom. My erection shot up like a lightning bolt. It was as if I was a teenage boy again. Mm -hmm. And in that moment I was like, Holy shit. That's an intense experience. Much like what I used to feel when I was a kid. And so then I was like, this is a lot of dopamine in the brain. This is a lot, but how, how can I, how can I help men? And so what I realized in that moment was I was watching the screen, but it created a trance where I actually felt as if I was being pulled into some weird machine or like some system. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so I had to like kind of step back from it because it was kind of making me in that intoxicated space. And so I pressed pause 
and I closed the computer and I turned my phone on and I clicked start on the timer and I just started squeezing my perineum and I moved the energy to my feet. I moved it up to my brain. I moved it to my arms. I was moving it out of my erection into other parts of my body. And lo and behold, as I fully become completely soft again, I look at my phone and it's four minutes and 52 seconds. Mm. I realized in that moment, oh, that's the missing piece that men don't have in our system, in our society, and in our world, which is that they feel as if they're a victim to their own physiology. Their head's on a swivel. They see somebody that's attractive or they see a young girl or whatever, and then their mind goes to this place and they don't want to feel that way. They don't want to get an erection. It feels awkward or, you know, oh, I'm cheating on my wife by thinking this thing. No, 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 no. Your body is an animal. It's amoral. It's going to do that no matter what. That's just what mm-hmm. it's actually designed for. But we have the ability through our conscious choice and our own morality to override that with our physiology and being able to control our physiology and actually bring that back down into a place where we're regulated, where we can actually carry on with our day. So why that's important as it relates to mindful masturbation and or let's say moving from this to that is is to say, first and foremost, just because it gets hard doesn't mean you got to go tug on it doesn't mean that you got to go rub it. You can control that. And then you can set a calendar where it's like, okay, I only want to masturbate once every two weeks or maybe once a month or whatever that is. And then when it's in the calendar, it's there, it's scheduled. You're not doing it out of a compulsion or out of a way to, or a way to get away from all these things that you don't want to feel. You're doing it as a, as an actual self-loving Uh, journey into discovering what it looks like or feels like to touch oneself and to treat oneself with love and care. Mm. So for me, my practice is pretty unique, but I have a full length (laughs) mirror. It's, it's lights low, it's music. It's a little bit of incense. It's massage oils. I spend a tremendous amount of time treating my entire body as an erotic zone. It's not just my cock. I'm actually waking up my entire body and I'm adding breath work and a little bit of mirror work into the experience so that I'm really, really tuned into my experience. Um, And then when I have those ejaculatory experiences, I don't feel drained the next day. There's not this you know, this downfall of testosterone where you have the lethargy and you have all of these other issues, you can actually bring a mantra into that experience so that when you do ejaculate, you can actually bring, um, whatever it is that you want. Like I want to create, I want to create, I want to create. And so that experience reinforces whatever it is that you're moving towards, uh, in your life and in your goals. And you're really bringing your whole physiology into that experience and you're exploding into that and it really does. It, it massively impacts, impacts and changes your whole outlook on things. I can't imagine how it would not. I think, I think the average person, or I should say the average guy listening to that would be like, that's fucking weird. Like I could never do that or whatever. Um, whereas I think a lot of women might hear that and go, I get that. I think women, women have been gifted with a connection to their body um, in ways that men uh, have access to, but aren't gifted with. Like we have to consciously seek it out. I think we often think of our bodies as tools. I'm strong. We're going to lift this. I'm going to push this. I'm going to defend. Like it's a, it's a means to an end. Um, whereas women, it's almost like they are, um, uh, uh, antennas and they're picking up on energy and picking up on, you know, you often talk hear women talk about their sixth sense, their intuition, uh, their gut feeling. Um, and as a, as a, of the genders of the two genders in the world, they're the ones that are more, um, prey than predator. And so that, that, that hypersensitivity to, is this safe? Am I okay? Is this good? Plus obviously through childbirth, their bodies are just freaking. you know, it's amazing to see how the body morphs and adapts and adopts to, um, child birth, uh, and, and them knowing what's going on in their body that like my daughter, who's 15 already knows things about her body that I'm like, you know, we'll just have casual casual conversation. And she'll mention something like, how do you know that? Like, Who taught you that? (laughs) And, but as men, we just have no idea what we're capable of and what we have access to. And I think what you're pointing to is this full bodied, um, well, how would you put that into words? Like, what is it that men are capable of that we often dismiss or have no idea it even exists? Yeah. I think the most important thing that it's, I think the most important thing that men miss is that 
they, I mean, ejaculation goes outwardly. So the way in which we relate to pleasure but when we learn to breathe into our experiences, we can actually stay at 70% speed and 70% pressure and 70% of like what would be an ejaculation. We can bring it down a notch. We can ride that wave for like 30 or 40 minutes and have an oceanic multi-orgasmic experience that doesn't have to end in, in an ejaculation, come out of the experience, feel just as good or maybe even better than when you do ejaculate and not lose any of the testosterone that we actually have. And so mm. we we often relate to pleasure as being this external thing. And one of the things that you bring up women that I think is a really important piece to this is when I ask women, I always ask them this question. I'm like, hey, have you ever had that situation where you're having sex with a man and uh, you know, you're really connected and everything's going well? And then all of a sudden he gets a little too aroused and he just loses, he loses you. And then he just goes for it. And, you know, he's, he's gonna, he's gonna finish and that may or may not be before or after you've already gone and you feel him kind of going into his own self and he loses track of you. And, and 99% of women like that I've ever talked to are like, yeah, I've had that experience. And I'm like, well, why is that? Well, why is that? Well, in my experience, and this is me de deconstructing my own sexuality, it's, the decades of porn use where you're quiet, you're constricted, you're in this little bubble. And then all of a sudden you get to that moment and you close your eyes and ah, and that's what it is. So my point more so is, is when you're doing mindful masturbation and you're actually connecting to yourself and you're actually looking at your own self in the mirror and you're looking at your own eyes, can you bring yourself to ejaculation and not close your eyes and not lose track of yourself so that you can both be with your partner and be with your own self and control your ejaculatory self or ejaculate. You can have any of those options on the table, but that said, you're not losing yourself or losing your partner in the lovemaking process because you've been training yourself your whole life to basically go into a dis disassociated state when you're about to orgasm. So that's the importance of doing this stuff. And it's not easy because anytime you get naked in front of a mirror, your self-critic comes up, you're fat, you're this, blah, 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 your skin, you're, it is gnarly to sit, but that's ultimately penis shadow work. That is where you learn how hard you are on yourself and how attached are you. And so let's say you're masturbating and you start to lose, you know, your erection. Well, what do we often do as men? We just go faster, harder because we, we don't want to lose it. What does it look like to be able to just non-attachment release into that experience and allow it to go to, and to go, it's okay. It's okay. You're okay. That's fine. There's no problem. No performance anxiety. No, like you're all right. Like we're so not gentle with ourselves as men. And then we end up bringing that into the bedroom. And then we have these disconnected sexual experiences and we're like, I don't know what's wrong. I can't figure it out. It's, we don't spend enough time with ourselves cultivating a relationship here. Yeah, 100%. And I think societally right now, too, we have um, an unprecedented drop of testosterone in men collectively. I think it's dropped like 30 to 40% over the last handful of decades, which is a huge alarming amount. Um, uh, and at the same time, we have a rise of feminine empowerment, which puts a lot of women into a masculine energy, which is not, neither wrong, right or wrong, but um, just looking at the polarities of the sexual energies, oftentimes in the bedroom, it makes it more difficult to find that deeper connection if the man is not accessing his deeper masculinity and the, the ability to um, be fully conscious that you're talking about, that full presence, instead of getting... Um, off into his own little mindset of, of achieving an end. And she might be more of in a masculine energy um, and or seeking to fully surrender, but not having the container there, the conscious um, masculine to give her safety, to allow her to feel what the feminine, the sacred feminine ha has the ability to feel. And it's like, it's, we're fumbling through this at best, I think, in the average, you know, in the median, um, the people that I talk to, um, it, that is certainly the case. Men are, men are very quick to get to orgasm. Women often are unpleasured. Um, they don't have access, haven't been given access to what their body's capable of. Um, and 
I think we lose. I think we all lose as a result of that. We don't know what we're missing. And as when you're talking about the stuff that you're talking about, it might be a little bit uncomfortable for people to think about or hear about, but if they have the courage to step into those things and then experience, once you experience it with somebody else, you're like, oh shit, this is, this is so far beyond what our Western culture of nine to five, you know, work for a paycheck, build up a little, you know what I mean? Like the, the American dream or whatever. It's like, this is, there's such a deeper journey spiritually that's available to us. If we have the courage to, to step outside our comfort zones a little bit. Um, yeah. And what I can say about that is, is what you're talking about is playing the infinite sex game, which is ultimately instead of playing a finite lens, which is the ejaculation has to happen for both parties or one party for this to actually be a success what we're talking about is just taking ejaculation and or orgasm off the table altogether and then moving at a space where you don't go above your 70% and her 70%. And you're riding those waves where anytime you're too stimulated above 70%, you're pulling out and you're breathing into that and you're allowing yourself to not. Once you get to 80 or 90%, you're going to, you're often going to burn that energy or you're going to have blue balls. You're going to have these problems that, that arise. So you have to ride that 70%. And when you do that and you learn that, well, then what happens? Oh, well, then you make love for three or four hours in one session mm-hmm. and or multiple sessions over one day. And then you're playing the infinite sex game where legitimately you are completely in complete control of your, and you get to choose whether you want to ejaculate or not. And so does she. And then that's when your actual sexual practice becomes a spiritual practice because then you're meeting yourself and and your partner on such a deep level, there can be anger, there can be tears, there can be all kinds of things that arise in that. And that's all healing in a way to like really uh, create a really strong union and bond with your partner. How does a couple do that? Do you have, do you set the intention and say, okay, babe, you're only going to go to 70% tonight. We're going to like, how do you, how do you actually create the container for that? And what advice can you give couples to, um, when they, when they start to get aroused to, to that point, like the tendency, the habit, the condition is let's go all the way. At least it is often for men. What, what techniques can you, uh, advise to maintain sort of that, that, oceanic wave that you were talking about yeah so it all starts really with a man in his own physical practice or his own masturbation practice with self and so it's like anytime you're masturbating and there's a desensitization meaning you can't feel yourself that means you're going too fast you got to slow down anytime you're in the prefrontal cortex so most men can't masturbate without a fantasy either forward or backwards or porn so for me when i masturbate there's literally no there's no image of another human. I am fully in the experience of feeling my own body. And so you have to learn to be able to feel like not to feel better with ejaculation, but to learn to feel, to, to better feel, to be able to feel yourself. Mm. So anytime you're masturbating and you're can't feel yourself or you're thinking about something else, you have to stop, breathe into it, squeeze the perineum and kind of bring yourself back into the awareness. Anytime you're disassociated, meaning you get that foggy lens over your eyes where like you're looking at yourself or your partner and you're not, you're kind of like seeing through a a fogginess. That's, you got to scale back from that. Um, So those are important things, but it's important to be able to communicate with your partner in a way where, Hey, um, your seven, because it's all about attuning to the weaker party's energy. So if the man, for example, is prematurely ejaculating, then what he has to do is ask his partner, you know, in this case, we're talking heteronormative, but we're asking his partner, a woman to say, Hey, like I need for you to cool your jets because your 70% is my hundred percent. And so you actually need to take it down to 30% so that I can stay within 70%. So I need for you to calm that down. And so then when you're in that experience, it's slow in and fast out if need be. And two, when you are getting too worked up, you have to learn to be able to breathe. Ah, move the energy out of your mouth. Learn to actually exhale the energy and pull it up and out. And so breath work's important. Sometimes scratching at the back of the man's on top of the woman, asking her to scratch your back. Hitting your kidneys can be very helpful to kind of move some of that energy out. There's a lot of different things you can do if you kind of go deep into the rabbit hole of Taoism, but they're very, very helpful just to kind of regulate our nervous systems. Yeah. Um, since we're on the subject, uh, let's talk about Tantra for a second. What... Um, 
how does somebody get into that? What the, I'm, I'm assuming we build off of some of the stuff that you're already talking about with breath work, presence, um, understanding the feeling in your own body. How does, how does one take that into the bedroom to um, experience yeah. more of that with a partner? I'm going to answer that in a unique way. One, most people think Tantra only means sex, but Tantra is a way of living. It's a little different, but I'm sure you are aware of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's why I steered it just to the bedroom because we were on that topic sexually. Yeah. But I think for me, what's important to understand is, is that Tantra is the fire method and it came from Taoism. It came through India and then it came to the West. And that's the fire method within Taoism. And then there's also the water method. And the water method is actually 1,500 years earlier than the fire method. So both methods are about non-ejaculatory experience and non-ejaculatory sex and being able to transmute that energy into whatever it is. So the way I look at the differences with the fire method, it's as if uh, somebody drops a stone in front of you and you're going to chisel that stone into a statue, let's say the statue of David. So you transmute that energy and you chip it away and wow, look at this beautiful thing. And everybody thinks it's great. That's very, very much the fire method and it's transmuting energy. Whereas the water method is very different, which is to say the stone drops in front of you and you may not know what you're going to carve. In fact, you might dance with that stone for a week, a month, a year, a decade, and slowly but surely you start chiseling as it's chiseling you and you're changing it as much as it's changing you. And when you get done, let's say, I don't know, it comes out as a tiger, who knows, but whatever it is that it comes out, you didn't know and it it was transforming and you were transforming it simultaneously. And so I think that when you're thinking about Tantra, there's, there's, there's different lineages of it. And I think that for me, what resonates is sort of the water method or the 70% method, which is understanding that when you really surrender to sex, it will change you as opposed to you controlling it and you being in control. You have to surrender to that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with plant medicine. <laughs> uh, good uh, segue. Cause I was wanted to circle back to your crazy experiences. You're like, well, yeah, we could go there if you wanted to. I'm like, yes, let's go there. So what's, <laughs> uh, what, what happened that was beyond crazier than pulling the spirit of uh, metal out of your head? Yeah. Right. The spirit of the industry. Yeah. Um, man. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for Why it. Not? Why not? I'm going to go for it. Let's do it. I have have not talked about this publicly yet. Okay. Um, I am very, 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 very much so into understanding the context of why I am the way I am as it relates to family history and genealogy. So I hired a genealogist to ran my my ancestry.com family tree. And I told her, I was like, I'm going into this ayahuasca journey. Can you call me and let me know anything you find on this day or whatever before this day? And Mm. so literally four hours before I'm about to go in, she calls me up and she goes, your seventh great grandfather on your father's side was William Penn, who Pennsylvania is named after and uh, his son uh, and he had 22 slaves and his son also had 225 slaves. Wow. And I'm like, that's a heavy thing to to find out right before you're about to go into an ayahuasca journey, including including, oh, and two, later down the road on that same line, you have four generations of cousins marrying cousins, which created eight lines of incest. Wow. <laughs> so I realized like, oh, that's, that's, that's some fucking heavy shit to move into an yeah. ayahuasca. Because what happens is, is when you enter these spaces, what you realize is that time and space morph and you actually can go forward and backwards in time in ways that you didn't realize that you could. And so all of a sudden when I'm in the ayahuasca journey, there I am, and I'm in the experience of being both. I am the slave, I'm the slave owner, I am the slave. I am the whip, I am the noose, I am the tobacco plants, I am everything in one, and I am sitting there watching it as if I'm there in the experience and feeling how that connects into my own DNA and my own actual experience of being a human and how that has traveled through the ancestral lines. And if you study epigenetics, you know that it takes seven lines for a trauma to finally make its way out so that it is not impacting wow. it anymore. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. And, so, and, so you and, were with, sorry, you were within the seven generations, right? Yeah. Like I am the seven. I am wow. the seven. So I'm breaking that. And And the thing that's important about that is to understand that, Often we only uh, 
empathize with the victims. And what I realized is like, oh, it's important to actually empathize with the colonizers and victims. Why? Because if you were born into a lineage of colonizers, you were just doing exactly what was expected of you from your parents before you, which is to say you're just carrying on that trauma, which you, if you abuse somebody, you also carry the trauma of being the abuser in your own nervous system. So until we as a society can actually empathize with colonizer and those that have been colonized, we're in a pickle because it's not just white patriarch, white men who did like, we're just carrying this lineage down. And, and ultimately it's everybody using everybody else as a means to an end to carry on whatever it is that, that belief system is, or whatever that system of, of church or state or money or wealth or whatever. So it was, it was really intense to move into that space. And I even remember, check this out. I even remembered as a 10 year old, having a whip from the fair, Indiana Jones. I watched that movie and I was obsessed yeah. with the whip and I would carry it around and whip shit. And all of a sudden I'm faced with feeling and remembering what it felt like to have that and why I was so fascinated with it. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. I, I, dude, you just, I just had a flashback to when I was approximately 10 years old and I got in a scuffle with, uh, some of my neighborhood quote unquote friends. We, we, it was so funny. We were either best friends, like going out and going on adventures together, or we were fighting. Uh, and this was a particular fight. And I had a friend, another friend down the street who had just gotten a bullwhip because yeah, Indiana Jones was a big deal back then. And I gave him a call. He's yeah. like, I'm getting the whip. And he shows up with the whip. Dude, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, and if it wasn't as bad enough to know that, she calls me the next day before my second night and she tells me your other seventh great grandfather was a guy named Colonel Henry Richardson. And he was trying to set up a British colony in Kentucky. And he was the one that created and transacted the largest land purchase in the history of America by buying 20, buying 20 million acres from the Cherokee Nation which basically meant that he forced the entire Cherokee nation <laughs> off of their land for, for $1.5 million of guns and arms, which basically means he gave them guns so that they would fight back so that we could kill them, which created an eight-year war. He hired Daniel Boone to create the entire trail through Kentucky. Nashville, Tennessee is named after him. Like my entire family system is colonizers and fucking slave owners. Holy shit, dude. And so when you go into an ayahuasca journey and you know these things and you feel these things and you're feeling them move through your body, it's really frightening. And two, it feels so good to vomit and to purge and to move that ancestral energy out of your system so that you can be free from the ways in which you're completely unaware in your own unconscious, your own body, these things that have impacted your own, your, your genetics and your DNA and the family systems. And your, and ultimately, like, I don't feel like I need to repent for what my family members have done. It's not my act, but it is my responsibility to break the, the, the curse, you could call it, of what, what happened to trans, what transpired at those times, which is why I'm so passionate about the way that a man treats his penis is the way he treats everyone and everything in the world, which is to say, if, you embrace this, you start to see if you stop abusing yourself, you stop abusing the world. And when you stop abusing the world, then we don't colonize other people or the earth or cut down trees or kill, take more than we need out of the sea. We stop doing that behavior. So that's why it's so important to me. Do you think we're on the precipice of a, of a massive spiritual awakening? I think that there's a lot of people that are using psychedelics to spiritually bypass certain aspects of what they're feeling, which is to say that and if you're using psychedelics to go into those emotions and to release those emotions, I think, yes, we are on a spiritual, on the precipice of a spiritual awakening. But I also see people that are just going back for one more journey, one more journey, one more journey. one, And so it becomes its own bypass where nothing in their life is really changing. So I like what Jamie Wheel says, which is that if your psychedelic journeys when you come back from them, you can't grow corn and you cannot actually create a business from that experience, not a business, but you can't create some way to be of service to humanity. And then you're just doing it for kicks and giggles. You're, you're doing it no different than you're drinking a beer. It's just for mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. So for me, I take psychedelics very seriously, which is my friend, Simon, he's a psychedelic facilitator. And he says it beautifully, true psychedelic, works, true psychedelic work is about decolonizing yourself. 
Mm. That's really mm. the way I look at it. Mm. What, what does he mean by that specifically? Well, I think what he means by that is, is that we are carrying the imprints of unconscious ways that we use, use other people. And I think that, you know, if we're really going into that and we're getting really the ways in which we have planet and we really metabolize that shame and then we turn back around and we go, I'm sorry. And I have no excuses for why I behave that way. Period. That's what I think, it, that's what's required for a spiritual awakening. It's like you use a psychedelic, you see where you were out of integrity, but you didn't realize you were out of integrity because somebody else used you as a means to an end. So you couldn't mm-hmm. see that you were using other people as a means. Mm-hmm. And then when you realize that you were using other people just to feel better or get more powerful or more money, then you go, oh shit, I did that too. And then you turn and you actually face that and you make those apologies and you actually do that in a way that allows for people to heal from the very ways in which you've harmed them, but you didn't know you were harming them because you mm-hmm. couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that in the human experience for sure. Yeah. Um, my God, if, if everybody came to that realization, uh, we would have obviously huge spiritual awakening. Um, Part of the reason why I bring that up is just because of the um, seemingly increased chaos in the world, uh, people tend to turn more inward and and lean on deeper spiritual faith uh, or understanding when they are in pain and when they're uncomfortable. And it seems like they're that that that's growing, obviously, with the pandemic and and all of the uh, all of the the shenanigans going on around the pandemic. Um, it's pushing people to push myself. I'll speak for me. It's pushed myself and my family to deepen my spiritual, um, strengthen my spiritual backbone. And I would imagine that a lot of other people are going through similar experiences, whether they're facing job loss or, um, relationship tension or, um, you know, just being on lockdown, being isolated is, is a difficult, um, journey in and of itself that requires maybe a deeper faith. So anyway, I, I, that to me is a silver lining to some of the stuff that's happening right now. Is it, is it possible that we're on a spirit? If we look at things through a spiritual lens, is it possible that we're, that we're deepening our spiritual resolve, deepening our spiritual um, substance awareness, et cetera, such that once we come out of this chaos that, that we're better for it um, collectively. So that's my, that's my hope. That's my intention to help create more of that because things are kind of crazy right now, but can we use that in a way to, to benefit uh, ourselves, others and future generations because we're more in tune with our, our spiritual nature. Um, I couldn't, I want that. I help move the needle towards that. Truly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, These kind of conversations, I think, uh, they're uncomfortable for a lot of people because it's outside of the, the conditioned, uh, you know, Western nine to five type reality, Netflix and, you know, bullshit stuff that we kind of get seduced into. But I do think that these are important conversations. Um, the stuff that you're talking about um, does require a level of maturity, a level of vulnerability, a level of courage. Um, and I really, really appreciate you, going to those places in this conversation and, and just kind of laying it out there. And I'm sure people ha- are, are going to have all sorts of reactions and responses. And, but at the end of the day, it's my hope and intention that um, the stuff that you've shared today just gets people to think and to question and to possibly explore, go a little bit deeper with their own journey and ultimately how to serve others and, and uplift others. That's the point of this podcast. And you've been a beautiful testament to that. So I thank you for the courage to, uh, to share your journey and, uh, and to have gone through it. You know, I'm sure you've done a, a lot of soul searching and in, in your yeah. whole, um, in your whole experience. Can I ask you really quick before we sort of tie things up, where did you begin with all this? How did you get into all this? Were you just naturally always curious about spirituality and consciousness? And yeah, I mean, I would certainly say that as a young boy, when I was eight or nine, I started having weird experiences where when I would sleep, I would 
I would feel like things were happening that I couldn't control. My body would have weird situations. Mm. Um, but you know, like men's work is really where it began four and a half years ago, getting into a men's circle and moving through my rage and my anger and all of my frustrations, um, and moving a lot of that out of my body was, was crucial for me to actually go on the spiritual journey in a way that was grounded as opposed to just sitting on a med- on a meditation cushion, meditating and thinking mm-hmm. I'm spiritual. I didn't, I realized that, that was not spiritual whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but yeah, thanks for, thanks for saying all that, Peter. And I would just say that if you're out there listening and anything doesn't resonate with you, like throw it out because a lot of what I'm saying may absolutely not be, you know, something that, that works for you or that, you know, and I, and I, and I love that because ultimately I'm not in, I'm not in the business of, of, of telling people what their truth is. I think ultimately it's, it's for everybody to discover. And I think the two questions that are really helpful for men is just like, Hey, is the way that you treat your penis, the way that you treat yourself? Yes or no. And then simultaneously is the way that you treat yourself, the way you treat your penis. And if you say yes to those two questions or no to those two questions, we've begun the dialogue and the discourse that is necessary for us to move the needle into the next, um, yeah, the next evolution of wherever we're going as a planet. Mm, so. mm-hmm. If uh, somebody wants to reach out and get a hold of you and, and continue this conversation, where might they do that? Sure. I don't have my um, landing page in my website uh, quite finished, um, but you can follow me on Instagram or on Facebook, Tyson And Hey, brother, sorry. Um, on Instagram you, with two underscores after. Um, sorry, you got... You got cut off there. What what was the Instagram handle again? Yeah, it's Tyson Adams, uh, T-Y-S-O-N-A-D-A-M-S with two underscores. Um, And you can also find me on Facebook. And ultimately, I am going to be running a workshop uh, for men um, next month, but it's an invite only for only 100 men. So if it is, if you are a man out there and you're listening and you're interested, then you'd have to contact me, direct message me um, individually to let me know that. Cool. Uh, where's that going to be taking place? Um, private. So it'll, be, it'll be offline. I'm not actually going to have anything posted publicly. It's going to be, I'm going to be inviting men who I know and, or who are connected to me. Got it. But it's in person though, right? Not over zoom or something like that. Or do you know? No, no, it is. It's a, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be an online event and I say five days, but really it's five hours. So it's going to be, a, it's, it's, it's a very simple thing. It's a hundred dollars for five hours, but it's going to be going into the practices and principles of the mindset and the body practices and even the detox practices of sex transmutation, like heavy metal detox, liver detox, testosterone building mm. is hour one. And hour two, we're going to go into the mindset, the philosophy, and then we're going to go into the body practices. And then we're going to go into money mindset and how sex transmutation impacts entrepreneurial flow and drive um, and nervous system regulation. So amazing. Fantastic. Tyson, amazing conversation. Thank you for uh, thank you for sharing all of that and having the courage to do so. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you as well, Peter. Appreciate you. All right, man. Have a good one. Thank you.